Hello, everyone. Welcome to this week's edition of Growth Everywhere, where we interview entrepreneurs and bring you business and personal growth tips. I'm your host, Eric Sue, and today we have Mark Organ, CEO of Influitive and former co-founder or former founder of uh, Eloqua. Mark, how are we doing today? I'm doing great. Cool. Thanks for joining us, Mark. So, yeah, why don't you talk about uh, you know a little bit? Give us a little bit of your of your background, and then uh, we'll go from there. Sure. Yeah, sounds great. So. Um, I could probably best describe as a serial entrepreneur. I'm, I'm working on my seventh business now, um, two of whom are kind of venture scale businesses. I've also done, um, you know, consulting and, and, and other types of, of businesses also. But I've tried to hold down a regular job and, uh, sorry. No worries. Gotta, <laughs> anyway, um, I've tried to hold down a regular job that often doesn't work out that well. I think I'm just wired to kind of create companies and run them. Um, but, uh, you know, so, so Eloqua was part of my last kind of venture scale company. I started it when I was 25 along with a couple of other, uh, you know, cool founders. Um, and, you know, Eloqua was a response to what I was learning as a management consultant about the importance of, um, of generating leads for salespeople. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I'd worked with quite a lot of uh, sales reps on sales effectiveness cases. Um, and, you know, seeing that reps that had lots of good quality leads were the ones that, you know, really outshone their, their peers. And it, and it had a bigger impact than edu- education and training and, and skills, lots of other things. Um, and at the time, in 99, you know, a lot of the best leads were being generated over the Internet and, and email, um, using email. So um, that became the idea behind um, Eloqua was to leverage the web in order to get sales reps the best leads so they could be more productive. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that was a bootstrap company. We tried to raise some money, but uh, from VCs, it didn't really work because we were all, you know, 20-something uh, real green uh, folks that nobody really <laughs> believed in. So we raised $166,000. We got profitable on that uh, and ran it profitably for three and a half years. Um, and subsequently, our you know, first product was, was kind of like chat on steroids, kind of like live person or, or, or Olark um, mm-hmm. had 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 morphed into an integrated email and website tracking tool, uh, which we then put an automation engine on it, and, and we hit product market fit um, on, on that. So, yeah, we were able to grow that business uh, profitably uh, over 60% a year until uh, finally we got the attention of some venture capitalists in 2005, five years after we founded the company, um, who then gave us our first round of venture capital, and we started to really take off from there. Wow. Okay. And how's Eloqua doing today? Uh, well, they're, they're, doing, they're doing great. They're, um, you know, Eloqua uh, did go public in 2012. Um, I was not a CEO while they went public, mm-hmm. uh, but really proud that um, they did go public, which was always my goal at Eloqua. Uh, they're now a uh, wholly owned subsidiary of Oracle Corporation, um, and they were bought for almost a billion dollars. Wow. So pretty amazing story. I'm actually here right now um, at the Marketo mm conference. So Marketo is Eloqua's biggest competitor. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is amazing how big and successful Marketo is. Um, and that was always the goal, right? It was not just to build a company, but we really wanted to build a category. And I think we were successful in doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, I'm really excited about categories. I'm really excited about you know, creating a whole ecosystem of, of new companies, not just, not just a single company. Hopefully being the number one company, in that ecosystem, <laughs> yep. um, but, but you know, that sort of thing. Um, so so that, was, that was the Eloqua story. I ran that for seven years, uh, took it to about 20 million in sales and 165 people 
uh, before uh, new CEO came in two thousand seven. Got it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So I guess I guess before we jump into kind of the, the other uh, slide decks that you've created before, why don't we talk a little bit about you know your current company right now? What's it you know Influtive? Sure. What's it all about? Yeah. Well, Influtive is all about um, helping companies mobilize their army of advocates. Um, and so advocates are like uh, fans or evangelists, promoters. I mean, these typically are customers. They're not always just customers. These are these are customers and users that are really excited about a product or company. Um, and so they do lots of things that are really important for growing companies. I know this is all about growth today, mm-hmm. right? But you know, one of the best ways to grow your business is is to have really enthusiastic users and customers tell all their their friends to go and use the product. Um, so our mission is to get the full potential out of every advocate, right? So our theory, which I think has been proven right, is that most companies get only a small fraction of what advocates are really willing and able to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and by making it easier and making it more fun and more rewarding um, for advocacy, what comes naturally, you can get a lot more activity out of them. And we do. So our customers typically get five times or more activity out of the same people just by providing an amazing experience for advocates. So we're the first company to really focus on the advocate experience. And um, you know, in so doing, we, we make advocates very productive. And in doing that, you know, we help companies um, accelerate sales like never before because their buyers are just surrounded by social proof all the time. Got it. Wow. So we have we had uh, another guest on the show, uh, Jason Lemkin from EchoSign. Uh, I know Jason real well. Yeah. So he's always he's big on customer yeah. success, right? I think this ties exactly into that, right? Oh, it sure does. I mean, Jason is a, is a mentor for me, someone I respect a lot, mm-hmm. uh, learn so much from. Yeah. Um, and he does write and speak very eloquently on um, on the need to focus on on customer success, um, you know, I just have a, a deeper definition of success than he does, mm. right? So for me, success is not someone who just renews their contract, or even someone who buys more, and that stuff's great. That's really important, you know. But a truly successful customer will advocate, um, and to me, that is the bar that every company should shoot for. Um, and he actually, no, he, it's not true. He does write about that, right? He does talk about, you know, why, um, uh, you know, a, a, a dollar of revenue. It's not just a dollar of revenue, right? It's, you know, sometimes your, your champion moves to other companies and brings you along. And they can also evangelize you to other companies so that they go and buy, you know, your product and service. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, like him, I totally agree with uh, very early investment in customer success. Um, you know, for us, it was a, one of the first employees with someone to make sure they took good care of the customers. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, and, it, but, but again, the, the bar is higher. It's, it's you're, you know, the job is not just to renew the account. The job of a customer success person is just as much to grow new logos as a salesperson's job is to grow new logos. Mm-hmm. The way they grow logos is to make the customer really happy, especially in the onboarding phase. Right? When a customer first signs on, that is when they are most susceptible you know, to being delighted, mm-hmm. right? uh, to, be, to, to go above their expectations. And when they do that, that's really when all the advocacy comes out. Um, so we help our customers focus on that. Got it. Cool. So how, you know, can you walk us through how, how you know, we'll, we'll just call it the app right now. How does the app work? Sure. Yeah, that's a great way to describe it. So yeah. it's, it's, uh, it's like Portal. We call it the Advocate Hub. Mm-hmm. And um, there's two key aspects of that portal. 
there are challenges and there are game mechanics. Okay, so the challenges are like, uh, hey, we're looking for new customers. Can you help out? Um, would you be willing to, to talk to this guy who wants to buy our product or wants to write about us? Um, or we're looking for great stories on who's, who's used our product to increase profitability or to improve time to market or whatever that is. Or, you know, someone retweet this. There's a bunch of challenges. Some of them are fun. Some of them, it's not all work. Like it's, mm-hmm. who do you think is going to win the Super Bowl? And, you know, which is the next company in Silicon Valley you think to go blow up? Eh, I don't know. There's all <laughs> kinds of things that, you know, we try to make it fun for people too. Um, and then so the game mechanics, you know, as, as advocates are doing challenges, they get points, they level up, they meet other advocates, they can challenge other advocates. Like we make it kind of fun and game-like. Um, and, and that makes it quite engaging so that people do a lot more activity. Um, and we also have quite a lot of automation in there. So, for example, for referrals, we don't just ask, or sorry, we don't just enable our customers to ask for referrals. Mm-hmm. Um, our software integrates with all the social networks of advocates. So we'll pop up people and say, here are five people we think that you know that we think will be a good customer. Can you refer us to one of these people? Mm-hmm. Um, as an example, right? We integrate with uh, CRM systems so that as the prospect moves through the buying process, the advocate gets more points and more recognition to encourage them to help close that deal, right? So those are some of the things that, that we do. Uh, we sell pretty much only to B2B companies, mm-hmm. um, and it's a white-label product. So basically, companies get their own, their own portable, or their own uh, portal. It's, it's, um, it's got their branding. It's got their colors and all that kind of stuff on there, um, and, um, and yeah, so what we found is it's really engaging. The average advocate does uh, about five challenges per session. So if we get them in to do something, um, even to go and opine on who's going to win the Super Bowl, we can get them to do four other challenges at the same time, right? Retweet this, give a five-star review on Yelp, right? Go and agree to a reference request, do some referrals, right? And, and do it really quickly. So really just in a few minutes of their time, they can do lots and lots of activity. Uh-huh. And that makes them feel good. Right, that they're productive, um, and it, it's we've heard from a lot of people. It's kind of addictive. It's kind of fun. Um, we, we've hired a number of people out of the gaming space, even though we're a B two B company. Yeah, uh, who are real experts, make things fun and engaging. We have our own growth hacker unit, which I can talk about later. That you know, we're constantly learning. You know, even it's unusual as a B two B company to have a growth team, but mm-hmm. we're you know we're we, we learned a lot from our B two C peers on how to do that right. So we're always experimenting. Run, you know, running tests, trying to figure out what's truly engaging, um, and you know, we're we're rolling out new micro features every week based on what we learn. Wow, crazy! So if I okay, let's just use my 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 marketing agency as an example, right? I want my customers to all they'll all come into this portal, and then what happens is, you know, we'll invite our, you know, we can have our customers, you know, complete challenges, and can we reward them with anything? Oh, that's right. I forgot to talk about rewards. <laughs> so we have a whole reward catalog. Um, what we found is the best rewards are actually things that money can't buy. Uh-huh. So it is possible to get a gift card or an iPad or whatever. But what we found really works really well are things like unique T-shirts. So you've got a single grain T-shirt, yeah. right? I- imagine if that had a neon yellow logo instead of white, and that was only available to to you know to your biggest fans. You know, people do crazy things to get that. I mean, yeah. They really want that kind of stuff. So like that, you know, our customers will often um, like at Marketo here. They've reserved. You know the front rows of, of their sessions for their advocates. As an example, they call them the Marketo Champions. Uh-huh. Okay, um, and so you know money can't buy that. The only way you get that is by advocating for the company. Um, 
you know, uh, invitations to private dinners, networking dinners, you know, um, uh, conversations with a chief scientist or, or some guru that, you know, you normally can't get access to. So those are the things that we've learned really motivates advocates to do immense amounts of activity. Uh, but there are some people who do want another iPad, and so, you know, <laughs> they can get that too. God, cool. wow, that's so cool. I'm, I'm almost sold on this. Um, I might oh, just cool, sign thanks. up after this. Yeah, <laughs> yeah well, you can, you know, on our, you can check it out on our website, com and get a feel for the experience if you're there. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah. in terms of, uh, you know, um, are you able to talk about, you know, traction right now? So are you able to talk about revenues or number of users right now? Um, let's see what I can talk about. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, I can talk a little bit of our growth. Yeah. Um, so we, we grew in terms of revenue eight times last year. Wow. Uh, on track for four times this year. Uh, we'll be doing about, the target's about four million in sales by the end of this year. Okay. Um, so um, in, in, terms of, in terms of users, we look at MAU okay. over here. Okay. Now, this is not going to sound like a big number, but you got to remember we're a B2B company. So we're yeah. somewhere around 2,500 MAU right now. Um, and again, that sounds minuscule, but you got to remember every advocate in our system, um, you know, if, if they go and generate a couple of referrals a quarter, they could be driving quarter million dollars of business for a company in that quarter, right? Mm -hmm. So. Um, and, and so that's, that's up, um, you know, that's up again over 20 X over the last couple of years in wow. terms of the, the MAU that we have. Mm -hmm. The other thing that's really interesting is 40% of our users are vice presidents and above. Huh. So these are really senior people. These aren't your ordinary average users. These are really special people that have no time. Yeah. Um, so, you know, being able to get them on average, they, on average, they'll come into their, you know, their. What, whoever hub they're sponsoring a couple times a month and we'll do something like four or five challenges in a session. So it works out to eight to 10 activities mm -hmm. per month. Eight to 10 activities per month per advocate. one person. Okay. Or wow. One person. Wow. Right? And, and each activity, you know, could be worth somewhere between a hundred dollars and, and like a quarter million dollars mm -hmm. for a single activity, depending on what activity they're doing. Um, so, you know, B2B is a little different that way. The, the numbers are much, much smaller, but the value is a lot higher. Um, and, and our focus, a lot of it's really around that engagement. I, I think we've figured out the engagement model now, which is really what we've been working on. And now our challenge now is to, is to figure out how to get the numbers higher by, by not just being able to mobilize the top part of the power law, which is kind of where we are today. You think about, you know, if a company has, let's say, uh, 1,000 customers, Right, thousand corporate customers because we're B two B, and our customers are B two B. You know, so we might get that top ten percent of that customer base to advocate. Right, mm -hmm. so let's say a hundred customers out of their thousand, and that's actually be pretty good for us. Um, our next challenge is how to get the next ten percent, the people who are not going to wear a single grain T shirt like you, right, and show the colors to everybody. The people who are a little more casual, how to get them engaged in a program is I think how we get to our next level of growth. Mm -hmm. And I think to do that, I think that's where the growth unit is so important, right? Is mm -hmm. to understand who this next rung is gonna be and how to really motivate them to do more. Got it, okay. And just, just so the audience knows, um, MAU is actually monthly active users, just in case, uh, just right. for reference there. Um, so cool, right. yeah. you know, we're, we're talking about growth right now. So in terms of you know, your growth team, you know, how is it made up right now? Yeah, so our, our growth team, uh, we have a, uh, we've got a designer, we've got um, a sort of a business owner, right? We've got 
somebody who um, is in charge of, of uh, figuring out what experiments to run um, uh, and, and, and tabulating all the data. Sort of, she's, I guess, our data scientist. And then we have a developer. Um, so we call it the Explorer team. Mm-hmm. It wasn't my name for it. I, I would have liked something like the Pirates or something like <laughs> something kind of badass like that. Yeah. Um, but you know, so so they run uh, about three experiments a week. Again, for those uh, people who are running consumer companies in the audience, mm-hmm. they won't be that impressed with three experiments a week because they might run three experiments a day yeah. or more. Um, but you know, being in B two B, we don't have that those kind of numbers. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we are the only B2B company that I know of that actually does this. Yep. <laughs> um, and the reason why is that we, we basically hired a bunch of social gaming people and, and we acquired, it's not acquired, but we, we hired their growth team essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just something I really believe in. And uh, ever since I met um, the, the head of growth from Quora, who used to run growth at, at Twitter. Andy Johns. Andy Johns. Yep. So I went to a seminar of his and we spent some time together and he got me completely hooked on the idea of growth. Yeah. Um, and, um, and, you know, uh, things are a little different B2B, but I think we've applied a lot of his best techniques um, in the B2B realm. And, um, you know, to, and, and it's made just massive impacts. I mean, we've had single experiments that have yielded, you know, 70% improvement in, you know, in engagement just by changing the location of a box or, mm-hmm. you know, that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think our next step is that we're, we're starting to beef up the engineering component of that team now so that it's not just a matter of moving boxes around or changing colors or whatever, but, but they're coming up with entirely new features on the fly and, and shipping them, shipping them that week. We have a separate deployment queue. Uh, we have uh, some of our customers that have signed up to be in part of, in, in, uh, we call it Influitive Labs. Um, so we, the, internally, we call it the Explore team, the customers... Think of it as Influitive Labs. Mm-hmm. And the ones that have signed up for it, they get our newest and most exciting features. Uh, sometimes those are buggy features. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're okay with that um, because, you know, there's, there's a number of, you know, breakthrough aspects in what we do, mm-hmm. right? Another step that we're doing is that we're actually integrating QA into the Explorer team so that a lot of these features are coming out uh, a lot cleaner, less buggy, which makes more companies want to sign up to be part of the labs program. Um, so, uh, yeah, big fan of, um, you know, big fan of integrated QA, test-driven development, mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff. Uh, we pair program as well, although not on the Explore team, but everywhere else we, we, we do that so that uh, the code comes up cleaner. Yeah, that's awesome. I think you guys are way ahead of the curve, like you, like you said. To have a growth team full of engineers and designers, that's something that any marketer would want. That's something I really, like, you know, longed for when I was leading a growth team. I was, I had to, like, it was like... Uh, pulling teeth yeah. to get design and, and engineering resources. So, uh, props to you on that for understanding. Oh, thanks. Yeah, I'll tell you. It, and it was kind. Of, I mean, so I I was a big believer in, it, and I think a lot of it was because I just loved Andy John's story. Yeah. Um, but you know, it wasn't that popular among some aspects of the of our company because it was seen as a separate team. They were a, kind of a rogue team mm-hmm. that had you know their own ideas. Because gotta remember, the rest of our development is actually. Um, it's, you know, it's quite machine-like. We, we, we pair program, we, we do TDD on everything. Like mm-hmm. there's What's everything TDD? we, sorry, test-driven development. Okay. Sorry, sorry no jargon worries. like no that. No worries. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, we don't write any code without designing the test for, at first ahead of time, before the code gets written. 
which I believe is best practice. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, it, it, it might feel sometimes that we're a little less agile because um, we, uh, we are quite careful and deliberate about how we do things. But the, the advantage is, is that the code comes out clean. Um, and it means that instead of chasing down bugs, our developers can innovate, mm. right? Um, so, you know, pair programming is a big part of that. And, and I'm a big believer in, in, in that and in pair programming. Um, so what that means is two developers work on one computer, right? Two screens. So one person is checking each other's code as they're writing it. And so a lot of people really don't understand that and think that seems like a waste of half of your developers. Yep. Uh, but it's not true because the, 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 you know, the, the work that we produce is extremely high quality. Um, and again, like one bug that you can't replicate you can have two developers wasting so much time trying to track that down, mm -hmm. right? In our case, those bugs don't really get out in the wild in the first place. We, 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 we fix them ahead of time. Okay, so there's, there's pros and cons with the way that we do development. Um, you know, the pro, again, is that super clean code, focus on innovation, whatever. But what it, what it, what it does mean is that we, can't re, we couldn't react as quickly to customer demands and running tests and experiments and whatever as we'd like. So that's why we've paired it up with this growth team, this explore team, um, that, you know, are, first of all, th that group also does all the UX testing as well. So they're constantly, um, they're, they're constantly um, uh, getting people to try things and uh, try to understand where they're, they're going sideways, where the users are going sideways, which often is fuel for some of the experiments that they want to run, right? Um, so in putting both of these together, I think that we have an amazing system. And the way I like to say it, it's kind of like if you look at, you know, British military dominance or naval dominance, you know, in the 1600s and 1700s, they, they needed both their imperial navy and they needed the pirates. And they both worked in a highly synergistic way, right? And that's why I wanted to call these guys the pirates, but <laughs> I don't like it. Um, but they needed both, right? They needed the Navy that's super disciplined and it's just all the time. Yeah. But you needed those crazy pirates too that, you know, had plausible deniability and they were much more random and much more agile. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, if the two worked together really well, which they did for Great Britain, you know, it was the recipe for, well, literally kind of dominating the world for a while. Um, and so that's kind of the way that, that, that I, I look at it here. If, if if all you do is the iteration part and the testing and experimentation, but you don't have this measurable, repeatable system that is constantly pushing forward, um, I, I think what ends up happening is you get a big ball of band-aids of a product. You get a product that's just incoherent. Um, it takes six clicks to do anything, you know? Um, and so uh, anyway, we put those two together. It's really working for us. Cool. So, good comparison. I have, I have a feeling that's a good, uh, it's a good slide deck for an, any type of talk in the future. Yeah, no, I, that's true. I'd love to. That's true. I'd like to put a slide together on the Navy and the Pirates. That'd be awesome. Yeah. All, All right. right. So, in terms of, okay, let's talk about. I guess I'll ask this question for both companies. So, for Eloqua, how did you acquire your first hundred customers? Ah, uh, very painfully. Um, so, you know, at again, Eloqua was a bootstrap company. Um, run by a bunch of 20-somethings. Um, Pirates. Who, yeah, and we <laughs> didn't know anything about anything. I mean, we, we just wanted to build a company, and we just wanted to survive another month, another quarter, mm -hmm. right? So, uh, and again, this is a B2B 
B2B companies. So, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd probably break it out into the first 10 customers and then, you know, 11 to 50 and then 50 to 100. Um, so the, the first 10 were basically me uh, calling on companies and begging and pleading for meetings and uh, somehow convincing people to write us check. Um, <laughs> and there really wasn't any sort of process involved. Um, I, I tried hiring a couple of, uh, of sales guys, kind of expensive sales guys in the beginning. It really didn't work out. They, they couldn't adapt very well to the environment of a startup. Uh, Jason Lumpkin writes about this a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, then what I did instead, the realization I had was, you know what, look, nobody's going to buy from a sales guy at our stage. Mm-hmm. It's a new, it was a new concept that we had at the time um, at Eloqua. You know, they, were, they wanted to buy from a founder. Uh, and, and look the founder in the eye and have the founder tell them that they're, they're going to make sure it's all right. Mm-hmm. right. So instead what I did is I hired a couple people who were just going to bang the phones and like shake the trees loose uh, for, for leads, mm-hmm. and then I would still go out and close them. Um, and so uh, and, and that, that was probably the first 10, 10 customers or so. Uh, we were always sort of flirting with bankruptcy at, at Eloqua, the big turning point for us came when uh, we decided to go after one of our well-funded competitors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that was right around the time probably we had something like 20 customers. Our, our ASP, by the way, was around 3000 a month. Mm. So it was, it was fairly high. And in fact, I was always trying to raise it. Um, and so, um, so a couple of things that we did to get, to get profitable. You know, again, we raised 166k. We got profitable on that. So two things that we did. Um, uh, one of them is that we raised our prices significantly. We raised the prices from like 2k to 4k. Um, we uh, really had a very narrow focus on uh, target market, which ended up becoming B2B technology. We, we originally were finance, insurance, and real estate, but that didn't work out very well. Um, and, and we charged for services. So it was more than just a product. It was an integrated product and service that we were able to charge more money for. Um, so I think that's one important aspect of the service. In fact, I would tell anybody, if they want to get profitable fast uh, in their software company, the best thing they could do is narrow their customer focus and raise their prices. Mm-hmm. Um, and sometimes raise their prices a lot. And uh, you, know, you, you don't need that many customers at 3000 4000 bucks a month a pop if you know we're all eating ramen noodles, mm-hmm. you know you, you don't need that many customers. You can get you get profitable on 20 customers, which is exactly what we did mm-hmm. uh, at 660k MRR. Um, the second thing that we did was we went after one of our kind of fat, dumb, and happy competitors. Uh, it's a company here in the valley. They raised 48 million dollars, um, and we had a product that had considerable advantage over them. Uh, their product and that we had an integrated email and chat engine and he just had a chat engine Mm -hmm. and we just called on all their customers and we flipped a couple over to our side and then from there we could flip a whole bunch of others to our side and uh, we got profitable in December 2001 so even after September 11th when the market was just completely devastated in technology we became profitable then and we never looked back profitable for 14 quarters in a row before I raised venture money. Got it. Incredible so, story. Yeah, it's pretty cool. I'm, it's a pretty amazing story. Um, so I think once we hit sort of 50 customers, you know, at that point we started to invest more in repeatable processes. Um, we had started to hire 
um, more experienced salespeople, mm-hmm. um, and uh, including some field people. We hired, even though we were a Toronto-based company, we hired. Uh, took a huge risk on a on at the time a expensive sales rep in the Bay Area. Um, she subsequently become a very famous, quite a famous rep. Her name is Jill Rowley, the the Elo Queen, and now. <laughs> anyway, you look her up. She's she's larger than life, um, but uh, big, big, big risk at the time for a, a bootstrap company to hire someone like her. But it was a, a big bet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you know we're able to hire a head of sales at some point and and really uh, built a lot of repeatable processes there in, in sales. Mm-hmm. I think the other thing that that's pretty important about repeatable processes um, is you know that. I think the top of the funnel is more important than the bottom of the funnel. Actually, Jason writes a lot about this, right? That if the number of leads are going up in quality and quantity every month, pretty much all is well in the world, right? Um, someone's going to find a way to close those leads. Yeah. In fact, the best leads kind of close themselves. I mean, the sales guy can make every mistake in the book, and if it's a great lead, it'll still close. So we, we focus a lot of attention on lead generation. Mm-hmm. Uh, we use our own product a lot, which I think is, is a great thing for companies to use their own product if they can. Uh, so we used our own product, we used it very well, um, and we made sure that we're always generating lots of leads. And um, you know, that, that's, that's how we did it. Got it. So Jason talks a lot about, uh, everyone in the audience should read his post on, on lead velocity rate, so go ahead and Google that if you guys, yeah, that, this is pretty much what, uh, what Mark's talking about. But, that's huge, um, that's exactly it. You talked about bankruptcy. So, I mean, you know, the scariest moment. I mean, how many weeks of cash did you have in the bank? Like, wh- what were you feeling exactly? Uh, well, there was one time I had four days of cash left. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we were, we were really ready to pack it in. And this is a great story. Um, so, I mean, at the time, we were kind of living hand to mouth. Uh, our board of directors was literally writing checks every month to mm-hmm. fund, the, fund the company. And they made it clear that... Um, the last check would be written on so-and-so a day. I can't remember what it was, but uh, there was four days left until that day. Um, and uh, that is when we, um, uh, we won a big deal with a division of General Electric, and, which we did out of literally their paperclip budget. This is unbelievable. So this division <laughs> of GE, I'm not kidding, literally it's their budget for paperclips. They... They had this division of GE had a um, uh, a digital. They just had a a big program to replace all the paper in our company with digital, and they were enormously successful at it. So successful that they had a budget left over for all the stationery and staplers and paper clips and stuff. Um, and literally, that was the budget that we sold our product into, several thousand dollars a month worth of paper clips. Um, and we won that deal four days before we were going to kick the bucket. Um, wow. And so that, that's actually what saved our company. But um, we, we've actually had several of those at, at, um, at Eloqua. So that was one. I mean, we had another one where what actually let us win that division of GE, there was um, a telco in Canada called Manitoba Telecom. Um, and they had put out, uh, our competitor uh, at the time put out a press release saying that, hey, Manitoba Telecom is our customer. Now, we're a Canadian company. And I was like, mm-hmm. you can't get any more Canadian than, than Manitoba or like Winnipeg. Like it is, it is, it's like the, the heart of Canada, okay? Mm-hmm. And here was our competitor from Silicon freaking Valley putting out a press release about these guys being a customer. Uh, so this is when we were about three months away from bankruptcy. Mm-hmm. And I was just livid. I mean, I was furious. 
So I called on this company. I'm like, I don't know what you guys are doing over there, but whatever, whatever those jokers from the Valley are doing, we're three times better, and here's why. Mm-hmm. And it turns out they weren't actually that happy with, with the company, and they said, well, fine, why don't, you, why, don't you guys, why don't you guys fly over here and see what, let, let me see what you do. Mm-hmm. And that was, I mean, that was like October, uh, and like Winnipeg is like the coldest place on the planet. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's ridiculous. So There's a blizzard, snowstorm, um, and you know, going there in minus 30 degrees to Manitoba Telecom to show them our stuff. Wow. Anyway, they, yeah, they, they, they loved it. Um, ended up becoming a customer a week later, which is like a miracle for a telecom to, to move that quickly. Um, and because we won that deal, we were able to win a number of other deals from this competitor. And that's kind of how we, that's kind of how we did it. Um, Damn. But yeah, no, I tell a lot of crazy stories. But yeah, that's. <laughs> We did what we had to do. <laughs> it takes a certain mindset to, to go through those moments, right? I mean, you know, I don't know if you read Ben Horowitz's book, uh, The Hard Thing About oh, Hard yeah. Things. I, I sure did. It's one of my my favorites. I love it. Yeah, so he talks about the struggle, right, where you you feel like you're in over your head. And I feel like you almost have to be almost, like, naive at times to just, like, go through it. Like, when it's everything's coming down on you, but you just got to power through it. Like, like what, what kind of, how did you get through that? I think that's it. It's funny you mentioned naive because I had one of my uh, – investors tell me once that my greatest strength is my naivete um <laughs> and it's true man like sometimes it's good if you don't know too much yeah. like when i when i when i walked into one of my first sales calls uh which was with uh, like the largest commercial real estate broker in canada it's kind of like like cushman and wakefield like it's just a and i walked into the ceo's office with you know a bad fitting suit and like a business card that was you still could see the perforations around it. I mean, it was just so such so cheap ass. Yeah. And our demo was just horrendous. And I just didn't know any better. And you yeah. know what? We won a deal. And I would never do that today. I'd be so embarrassing. Yeah. Right. But you know what? Like, there's just something to be said for just showing up. Yeah. Uh, so it's funny you mentioned. You know, you mentioned naive. Um, you know, it, it was definitely a struggle. But I would say at the time, at, at we just didn't have a choice, man. Like, we we had raised money from our parents, our families. Um, you know, at the time I, my, my girlfriend was paying for us to live with her credit cards and her student loans. I mean, it would have been a freaking disaster if we let this blow up. So yeah. there's just, there's just no choice. Right. Um, and, um, uh, yeah, man, I, I could go on and on. Um, good times. but, um, yeah, I mean, good, I mean, good times. I, I think, you know, uh, I, I had a great, um, I had a great advisor, a great, a great mentor, uh, Vince Shirelli, who told me a very simple maxim, which is, look, you can't manage your results. The only thing you can manage is your activity, right? Like and that. uh, and and that's that's, I mean, that was that's in a sales context. I mean, the, the idea is for sales guys is, look, you know, you can't you can't focus on getting deals. It's not your, it's not your control, right? The only thing in your control is, is the activity that you do every single day. Mm-hmm. The number of calls you make, the quality of calls, the quality of your preparation, right? But I think that can be extended for the whole company, right? At the end of the day, the only thing you can control as CEO is you control your own mindset, right? Mm-hmm. And the activity that you produce. And, um, and, and I think Ben does, I mean, he doesn't say that exactly, but I think that's a big part of him talking about the struggle, right? Keeping a positive mental attitude and so that you're continuing to produce higher quality and quantity of activity every single day. You try to get 1% better every single day. 
that is the route to victory and success. So I'm really grateful to, to him for, um, to Vince for helping me with that. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, couldn't agree I, more. I, I think, I think these, these moments would drive, I mean, that, that's why you're an entrepreneur, right? You, you, you live for these moments kind of, uh, yeah, you do. And I think, well, I think the other thing too is I, I was lucky enough to have worked in a number of different jobs. Um, a lot of them not fun. Um, and honestly, I, I didn't really want to go back to just working a job with my tail between my legs, you know, knowing that I've blown whatever money of my family and my employees' family. A number of, of our employees went without pay for months. Wow. Our, our entire development team went without pay for nine months. Many, Many of the multimillionaires today, because they took stock instead of cash, which I'm very proud of. Um, nice. But you know, man, you owe those guys something. You know, yeah. like there's, you can't, you can't give up. You can't throw in the towel. And I think in many times, you know, the reason why Eloqua did well is that we just survived longer than everyone else. Okay, so here's something that's interesting. If you look at the companies in marketing automation and email marketing yep. that have hit scale today, with, with the exception of Marketo, which was only founded in 2006 um, and was a classic Silicon Valley company, you know, raised a ton of money and deployed it very, very well. Right? But you look at everyone else. Okay? Eloqua is in Toronto. Mm -hmm. Exact Target um, was in Indianapolis. Okay? Emma was in Nashville, uh, Tennessee. Silver Pops in Atlanta, Georgia. I mean, these are all companies outside of Silicon Valley. All of them went through the struggle. All of them. We, we were all had elements of bootstrapping. You know, like Zach Target guys will tell you their first 10 customers were in dry cleaners in Indianapolis. Like, it's kind of it's how, you know, a number of us, uh, um, you know, got, got started. It's, anyway, it's, it's a fascinating story. I, wow. I'll, I'll let you ask more questions. I'll, no, I, I we've got to have you on the show another time for for more of these, man. This is, <laughs> I, I think we're barely just scraping the surface here. Yeah. Um, cool. So a few more questions from my end here. Um, sure. So you know, in terms of the, like what you do differently, um, if you let's let's just go back using the Eloqua story. So if you could do anything differently, like what would you go back and change? Well, I'd probably manage my board a little better. <laughs> so uh, you know, I. I uh, boards don't work exactly the same way the management teams do. I learned that the hard way. Um, and uh, they do require management. And that's something that I never really wanted to spend much time at because it felt like I wasn't really driving a business forward. Mm -hmm. um, I felt like, you know, spending time with customers and employees was the way to really move things forward. Um, and I think ultimately, even though the company is doing very well, it's one of the reasons why, you know, there was a change in CEO. Mm -hmm. And why I wasn't the guy to ring the, the NASDAQ bell in 2012. Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, you know, I, I, it's something that I'm trying to spend more time at now. Um, I think that the importance of, of spending a lot of time with employees and teaching and mentoring and growing them was not something I really understood that well mm -hmm. at Eloqua until it was really too late. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so after we raised money, uh, the company probably needed different behavior for me, mm -hmm. uh, and I still was uh, out in the field all the time, uh, selling and meeting with customers, which is a good thing. I mean, that's good too, and 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 I, I still think it's important for a CEO to get out of the building. Um, but my focus is different now. It's not just about getting revenue. Like when I meet with customers, it's about understanding what they're going through and try to 
try to figure out how to make a better product and service. Mm-hmm. Not about trying to get some more revenue in the door. Not about trying to get, you know, let's even get more users. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, it's just, it's it, it, just more deliberate about my approach now because I, I understand a little better. So, so now I do a lot more. I do one-on-ones with my direct reports every week. I do one-on-ones with other people throughout the company. I do at least a couple lunches and coffees every week with people throughout the company and organization trying to understand how to make their experience better. Mm-hmm. I, I never did this at Eloqua, or I didn't do it until too late. Um, so I would definitely change that. I would change the way I manage the board. Um, you know, I'd probably think a few times before I acted, particularly sending out angry emails. <laughs> uh, angry emails are, are killer. Yep. Just, just don't do it. <laughs> yep. Don't send angry emails. Uh, save it to drafts. Yep. Sleep on it. <laughs> That's what I do. Um, cool. So, you know, Fred Wilson says, uh, you know, the, the goal of a CEO is to is to recruit, right? That's number one. And yep. it's to keep cash in the bank and, uh, you know, the vision. So those three things. Would you add anything to that? Um, so I agree that those three things are, are really important for a CEO. Um, the thing is, is that a lot of founder CEOs are more, they're acting in more than just a CEO role. Okay, they're often a de facto COO as well. Mm. And that does require additional responsibilities up until the time when those sorts of functions are, are, you know, are, are being uh, hired for. So I do agree those are the three most important things, vision, uh, high standards in, in hires, recruiting, uh, and don't run out of cash. Yeah. Um, I would add a couple things to that as long as the COO is also the chief operator. Mm-hmm. And that is development of repeatable processes throughout the company. Um, doesn't all happen right away, but I think um, you know over time, more and more processes in a company need to be codified and repeatable. Um, I mean, that is if a company wants, you know, if a CEO wants to build a highly scalable company that's, you know, going to be one of these billion-dollar-plus moonshots in seven years, which is what my goal is, right? Mm-hmm. I, I don't have a lot of time. Um, the, the, the best companies in the world are able to build a billion dollars of value seven years after founding. Mm-hmm. So I feel like there's no reason why I can't do that too. Um, but if you want to do that, there's no way to do that successfully without um, having repeatable processes throughout the company. So yep. what does that mean? That means in recruiting, you know, managers should be able to recruit really well without having VPs and C-level people have to babysit them. Mm-hmm. Right? And that's possible if those processes are codified. Um, new customers should be able to be onboarded um, in a highly standardized and repeatable way um, because there's, there's no way that you're able to grow at the kind of pace that you need to grow if you want to build you know, the kind of startup, right. venture-backed startup value. Um, so I'd, I'd add that. I would also add um, development of strategy as well. Um, so I think strategy and vision are not the same thing. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, vision is is you know what you see yourself becoming it's it's how you see the world evolving strategy to me is about what is the real estate that i need to own what is that hill i need to take and that 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 hill or that strategic high ground that if i own it i own all the fertile valleys below right so it's the idea of leverage right because as a startup you don't have infinite resources mm-hmm. So you need to concentrate your resources so that you own something that even though it's small, there's a high degree of leverage over you know, vast portions of the market, vast portions of the value chain. 
Um, and I think it's really great if the CEO is in charge of that. And I think the company needs that from the CEO. Um, up, at least up until the time of getting to, you know, 150, 200 employees and maybe, maybe beyond that. Um, but so I, I'd add those two. Now, I think when the company develops, you know, say a, a highly operational CFO mm -hmm. or a COO or a chief revenue officer or someone like that that actually is able to take on multiple functions off the CEO, mm -hmm. I think at that point a CEO can really focus on those three things and probably the company needs that. Mm -hmm. I think the company, you know, if, if, if I were to spend all my time developing repeatable processes and strategy, but, but keeping my eye off the ball from you know, stand, high standards in recruiting, mm -hmm. I'm probably not doing my job so yeah. at a certain point in time. Um, so yeah, I'd, 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 add, I'd add in those, those couple of things. Um, okay, super helpful. All right, cool. cool. Uh, final two questions from my end. So what's one, uh, what's one book you'd recommend to entrepreneurs? Oh man, there's so many of them. Um, you know, it, it really... It really depends a lot on on the entrepreneur and and, and what um, where their gaps are. Right? I I really do like the hard thing about hard things quite a bit. I mean, it's a it's a pretty new book, um, but I think it uh, you know I learned a lot from that. And it's I think what's great about that book is it teaches a lot about management mm -hmm. um, that is not really all that accessible to founder CEOs. Uh, so so I've learned a lot from that. Um, some other, I'll just talk about some other books that I like. Um, I, I really like The Goal by Eliyahu Goldratt. Um, you like that? Yeah. yeah. Jeff Bezos makes all of his direct reports. Read it. Um, from, from that, I learned about the importance of working on the global optimum mm -hmm. um, as opposed to local uh, and, and to uh, understand better about what throughput really is. Yeah. Right? So uh, I really like that book. Um, I like that book a lot. Um, uh, you know, for those of us that are building disruptive companies, you know, the innovators dilemma, innovator solution, innovator solution is a classic. Um, I, I think, you know, whether you're building a disruptive solution or whether you're trying to prevent someone else from eating your lunch, you know, that was my Bible. Literally, it was by my bedside every night while I was building Eloqua in the early days, and and I really credit mm -hmm. uh, that uh, that book um, with a, a lot of the success that I've had. Um, you know, Crossing the Chasm is another one. Again, these are all sort of standard, standard uh, books, but, um, you know, it is amazing how prophetic that book is. The, the importance of um, micro-verticalization, right, of finding niches that you can dominate. I think it's one of the most important lessons for building a startup. You know, when I, I think a lot of entrepreneurs are so heavily influenced by success stories, you know, like like Facebook and, and whatever, Microsoft, Google, and they see these really broad companies um, but don't always appreciate, or Salesforce.com and B2B, but don't appreciate how narrow they were in early days, right? Like Salesforce.com was so narrow about who they focused on. They focused on, you know, high growth, venture-funded companies, B2B companies in Silicon Valley area, right? Mm -hmm. And they nailed the use case for that and they kind of rolled out of there. Um, and uh, so uh, I think there's very little that's more important for development of a startup than target market identification and focus. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, being able to dominate a small niche, you know, it's just, it's a great way to get profitable fast, to be able to grow fast and, you know, and, and you know, roll out of there. 
to adjacencies once you've sort of figured something out that, that you can you know you can own. So I, I learned that from crossing the chasm, um, and, and the importance of referenceability, which is a big part of what my new product does too. It's really cool. Yep. I don't know. I, I read a lot. I read a lot of business books. It's hard to, but those are some of the, the classics that I've really come to like. Cool. You have to share. You have to share your other books in a blog post sometime, I guess. Um, yeah. Cool. Final question from my end. Um, so, what's one productivity hack that you could share with the audience? Oh man. Um, yeah, I'm not that great at productivity. <laughs> um, so it's it's hard to say. I mean, it's something that I'm really working on. I mean, there's there's one that my coach has me doing every day, and it's really simple, but it is working for me, which is you know, uh, every morning I write out three things that have to get done that day and I put them in the calendar and um, typically I only get one out of those three done yeah. uh, but at least to get one done and um, I mean that, that's an old method I mean that, that was the that actually was the rock one of the Rockefeller mm-hmm. methods um, book. yeah yeah so you read that too I mean you know just just making sure that you make the main thing the main thing mm-hmm. um, and that that's it for me but I'm I'm uh, time management is something I'm always working on. I'm actually not that great at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'll have to listen to more of your podcasts so I can learn about more productivity <laughs> hacks from my, my fellow CEOs. All right. <laughs> so, Mark, thanks so much for doing this. Tons of insight. I have to have you again on the show. I know there's more hey. stories. Um, but, yeah, we'll talk to you again soon, huh? That's great. All right. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed it. Thank you. Bye-bye. All right.